0: The least popular kind of book, I'm told, is the biography. Most of us are so interested in ourselves that it's hard to capture, apparently, people's attention to read about the life of somebody else. It's a tough genre to sell. But then, sometimes, a biography is, a biography is written that really does capture attention worldwide, it's been many years now, but the iconic founder of Apple Computer, Steve Jobs, authorized someone he chose to write down his life story. It was published a few days after Jobs' death, and it sold like crazy. I read back then that a million copies sold in Japan alone, and the extraordinary thing about that is probably very few of us, and especially... I would think it's true even more so overseas, can name even one other person that works for Apple Computer unless your friend happens to be down at the Apple Store uh, helping people pick their products out. The lives of extraordinary people do capture our attention. I make zero effort to keep up with the royal family, but even I can't escape the fact that apparently there's been some family friction in the last year or so... (laughs) And Meghan and Harry gathered up their stuff, canceled at least some of their rights, and people are so captivated by the lives of people they will never possibly meet that now there's a Netflix series and Harry's publishing a book with the disturbing title Spare. Apparently that's what you're called if you're the second in the line of succession and probably won't be king. You're just a spare king if if, uh, tragedy strikes Uh, your sibling but the whole world is fascinated with a few extraordinary people that's the way of the world that's the way human interest works nobody likes to see the secondary story nobody cares about the second character in three part in three gospels in three different ways god tells us the father tells us about the birth of his son By far the most extensive story with the most details is found where I'm going to ask you to open those Bibles in Luke chapter 2. Let me remind you of what's happening in Luke chapter 2. Luke has given us a long introduction to the arrival of Jesus. First, John the Baptist, a relative of Jesus, likely his cousin, is going to be. Born himself in Luke chapter 1. The birth of Jesus is prophesied in Luke chapter 1. Mary sings a song of praise. John the Baptist, who's going to come ahead of Jesus and prepare the world for Jesus, is born in Luke chapter 1. And then in Luke chapter 2, the story slows down and begins to give you these extraordinary details of the birth of Jesus himself. It begins with a power play in Luke chapter 2 verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. You want to know about the power of the ancient Roman Empire? Just think about that verse for a second. Caesar, who will eventually, these men will eventually come to think of themselves as gods walking the earth themselves and demand worship from Christians. Exercise brutal power by telling every nation, people, and tribe under their empire go home and register, let the powers that be know that you exist. By going to your ancestral homeland. Major inconvenience for the whole world. Something done sometimes because that's the way power works. Simply because it can be done. And in those difficult circumstances we read in Luke chapter 2 verse 7... Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Luke tells you that no royalty visited then. Only shepherds were told. Angels sang about the birth of Jesus. And that's the Christmas story and that's often where people stop Reading the Christmas story because the king has been born, the spotlight is shining brightly on the protagonist, and often even Christians maybe reading the Christmas story at Christmas time with their family stop the reading there because Jesus, as promised for so long, is now finally among us. But the story keeps going, and I'd like to draw your attention away from the center stage, to introduce you to two people who were mentioned only here, who you otherwise would never have heard of, and tell you, really, that there are lessons all around the birth of Jesus and not just the manger. And if you read the whole story, Christmas will tell you a great deal about God. Read with me in Luke chapter 2, verse 22. That really got detailed and got extremely Jewish, didn't it? Suddenly, the familiar shepherds, the angelic choirs, the famous, turns out to be, controversial John the Baptist are offstage and a very ordinary, seemingly mundane, extremely biblical, extremely Jewish thing is happening now. An ordinary young couple is on their way. They could have done this other places, but it speaks a little bit about their devotion to God. They are going all the way to Jerusalem to present Jesus at the temple. And the story reads so Jewishly, so Old Testament and unfamiliar because they are on their way to do all they can to keep the law of Moses. The details tell me that Mary and Joseph were poor as well. God, in His mercy, has set aside a ceremonial rite by which the firstborn is going to be dedicated, especially to the Lord. He's given some economic latitude so that people can give an offering according to their means, and the offering they're bringing is a small one, fit for a poor family. Jesus is now over a month old, He's no longer in the manger. He's been home now. Mary and Joseph have lived as husband and wife for over a month. Jesus is no longer the tiny infant that was cradled in the manger. He's a boy over a month old and he is going to be dedicated to the Lord. And then you're going to see two people heard of only here walk into the story and take over to teach you about God. Look in verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, this is very important, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Can you imagine living with that promise? Let me make sure you understand it first. Simeon, like every Jew in his day who is trying to please the Lord, is attending temple. When he's away from Jerusalem, he's going to the synagogue Sabbath by Sabbath, weekend after weekend on Saturday. The Hebrew Scriptures are being opened. Isaiah and the Psalms and the Law of Moses are being written. They leave that worshipful environment where they're encountering the word of God and walk back out into the brutal teeth of the Roman Empire. Promises that are made and desperately needed seem to be failing every day in sight of the Roman occupation that will only tolerate their religious freedom and their their right to exist as long as Rome itself is not threatened. Rome that orders the whole world to disrupt their lives and go back to their ancestral homelands. In Jerusalem, what seems to be an old man has been told by the Holy Spirit of God Himself who wrote the Scriptures in the first place, you will personally see my Messiah. You're going to live until you see the Savior. And then, we're not told how that happened, but Simeon received a revelation from the Holy Spirit that promised Jesus in writing, telling him to leave his home, to go back up to the temple because the Messiah was now in the temple complex. Verse 27. He came in the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God. Now, I can't relate, even though I once had two infants as sons grown now. Moms, if you're walking into a place of worship with your baby and a stranger walks up and takes him from you and begins praying, how might you feel? It's a really amazing story. He comes up, scoops up the baby Jesus, and begins to teach us this first lesson around the birth of Jesus, not just the manger. Here's the first one, and it's a lesson for all of us. God keeps amazing promises to ordinary people. You never would have met Simeon if Jesus hadn't been born. Why did God in His grace decide to include a man who has no other role except to live with the confident expectation that his life won't end until he has personally witnessed the fulfillment of all of God's promises? Why did God do that? I think the subtext for us is that the nature of the God we are worshiping and praying to and giving offerings to spread his good news, the reason this church exists is to honor the kind of God, the only God there is, and he is the kind of God who keeps extraordinary sacrificial promises to ordinary people like us. We know nothing about Simeon except the fact that he loved God and entirely by God's grace he was told you won't die until you personally see my promises fulfilled. And that's amazingly good news for all of us. Because the only kind of people there are in this world are ordinary people. Can I ask you for a moment about your own self-assessment? Do you see yourself as kind of special? Do you believe your mom when she told you you were a very special and unique person and there was no one quite like you? In a sense, because we're all made by God, we are really all unique and blessed and extraordinary in our own way, but a much, much more important way. We're just frail human beings Our life is not our own. It didn't come from us. It didn't originate with us. We can manage it, but we can't really and truly control it. It's good to keep a realistic view of who we actually are. We live in an age where self-promotion, what people in marketing call brand management, is one of the most important things about living in the 21st century. I've had people actually ask me, I can't help but laugh when they do, what's your brand? Well, I I don't know. I like tacos. Um, (laughs) Does that count? Self-promotion, make your name, put yourself out there, climb the ladder, control what people think of you. Maybe like me, you've met people in real life that you first met online and you've been surprised by the difference between what they appear to be in social media and what they actually are standing on a street corner with you. See, here's here's the reason I'm mentioning this. As long as you see yourself as the protagonist and the hero in the story of your own life... You won't have much interest in Jesus. And Jesus, powerful as he is, will do little for you. We've created a culture, and Orange County has perfected it, that has made every man and woman believe he is a king or a queen and is at the very center of their own story. The gospel, the story of God, chronicled in the covers between the covers of the Bible you're holding tells the contrary humbling story. God himself is the hero. God is an extraordinary giver of life in every good thing you've ever enjoyed. And not because we deserve it, not because we could ever earn it. God in his goodness keeps incredible promises to ordinary people like Simeon and like a woman you'll meet a little bit later in this story. Go back with me, please, to his speech. Verse 28, he took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. God kept his promise to Simeon. For an untold number of years, perhaps decade, he lived with the confident expectation that his life would continue until he personally saw with his own eyes and today held with his own hands the essence, the very fulfillment of all of God's promises. And the truth is, the way God has always worked is to keep amazing promises to normal people. 2,000 years roughly before when Jesus was born, God reached down into human history. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 12 in the very beginning of your Bible and promised a man named Abram who had no children that not only would he have children, he would father a great nation. And from that nation that came to be called Israel, a Savior would be born for the whole world. Several hundred years after that, God reached into the life of a frightened Sometimes prideful, sometimes despondent man named Moses and raised him up from fear and self-loathing to set his people free from bondage in Egypt and Moses saw things that he could not possibly explain much less do himself. Centuries after that, the greatest of all of Israel's kings, a young man named David, was literally called from behind his family sheepholds to find himself amazed to be anointed the king of Israel. Every single one of these people, ordinary. If you read the Old Testament, all the so-called heroes of the faith in the Old Testament had a singular trait. That set them apart. All they did was believe God. That was their greatness. It wasn't found within them, it was found in God Himself who graciously made them promises. And they rose, and their names were written in history not because of their own skill, because of their own virtue, because of their own talent, the things that culture loudly tells us we have to cultivate if we're going to matter. Their lives resound in history and are part of God's story simply because they believed that God would keep undeserved, amazing promises to them, ordinary as they were. Whether it's Abraham or Moses or David or in the life of Jesus himself, what kind of people did Jesus work with initially? Who did he call to him? What was the number one profession among the apostles? Do you remember? Fishermen. Fishermen of no particular importance. Of Galilee, as you're going to read, of Galilee of the Gentiles. Look back into Simeon's song. Lord, verse 29, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What God is doing is not only keeping these amazing promises, but number two, Simeon's song tells us that God is at work to save people from every nation. Let me show that to you so that you don't miss it. Look in verse 31. Simeon is holding baby Jesus and says, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all, what's that word there? that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. You think that's a misprint? Shouldn't that just say people? Doesn't that sound strange? It's not a misprint, it's a whole other word. And what it means is ethnic groups. When we talk about the peoples of the world, we're talking about the tribes, the clans, The different ethnic groups that make this world so interesting and so diverse. Simeon is singing that the promise that God is keeping means that he is turning on the light for every nation, every tribe, every clan, every ethnic identity in the history of the world. That that will bring glory to the nation he made through ordinary Abraham, but it will reveal The nature, the character, the name of God to the whole world. And that's good news for us. Because I don't know about you, I don't actually know where I'm from. And most people who grew up in this country don't really know for sure. I can't tell you how many families I've known who've had their whole lives thrown into chaos by doing some genetic testing and finding out what their family lineage is. I grew up with a whole story of where we're from. One of my cousins finally ran the test. Turns out we were raised on things that weren't quite exactly true. I'm not sure. It wasn't even a good story to begin with. I'm not sure what the confusion was. But the truth is we're from all over. You can look across this auditorium and see that we've gathered from all the corners of the world. That's good news for us long before the nations of the world were paying attention to Jerusalem in what the Gospel of Matthew calls Galilee of the Gentiles. In other words, ordinary Galilee, the breadbasket of the country, the workmanlike place that feeds everybody else, that is trampled by the Gentiles on their way to somewhere more important, That's where Jesus and his disciples were from, from places of no particular importance. God is working among ordinary people, in no account places, in backwater country, so that he can save the whole world. You'll notice the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all mentioned as Simeon begins to sing his praises to God. All of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is at work to keep all of God's promises and to save people not only from Israel but from the whole world. The Father has promised to send the Son. That's the good news. That's the initial promise. The Father has promised to send the Son. The Spirit has inspired people to write those promises down. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21 you can read with me. First, the Father's promise to send the Son. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Could I have that on the screen, please? Would you read this with me? This is the Father's promise 700 years before the birth of Jesus, telling the world that Jesus will arrive and someday Simeon will sing and praise the Lord in the temple. Read Isaiah 7:14 with me, please. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign... Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The Father has promised. The Spirit, centuries and millennia before Jesus was born, inspired people, moved people along to write those promises down. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, Peter, an ordinary fisherman, is going to reflect on the Hebrew Bible, the thing he heard all of his life in the synagogue, and he's going to explain to you how the Bible you hold came into being. Read this with me. 2 Peter 1, verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's parse this for a second. In this passage, in Luke chapter 2, Verse 29, Simeon said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Simeon received first the word of God in writing and later sometime surely in his adult life God gave a personal word to Simeon saying all the promises that you've heard, read aloud, that maybe you've taught to other people, you're going to be uniquely blessed, normal as you are, by seeing them fulfilled in person. You're going to hold my promises fulfilled. And in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 21, Peter explains how those writings came to be. He's talking about Scripture. Here's the value of the Bible we're reading that I'm trying to explain to you that you can read in your own home. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. In other words, the Bible is not a human production. It is not a human idea. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. How did it come to be? Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. For those of you who enjoy word studies, that word produced, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, and that word carried along by the Holy Spirit, different in English, same verb in Greek. Peter, with his ordinary fisherman language, is saying the scriptures we're reading that told us about Jesus, they were not our idea. We were not burdened for them or burdened by them. We didn't produce them. What God the Holy Spirit did instead was pick men up and carry them along to put in writing up to a thousand years before the birth of Jesus Jesus. Everything about him. So that people would recognize him and know that Messiah had come. That's why Simeon was so excited. I don't know if you can visualize this with me. But Simeon is now standing beside and obviously astonished Mary and Joseph. Who Luke explicitly tells us are stunned by the things that are being said about their boy. He's holding Jesus in his arms with his face turned toward heaven. Praising God that now He holds the Savior of the world in His own arms. The Father promised the Son. The Spirit put it down in writing in advance. And then, what we're celebrating this weekend, the Son comes in perfect obedience to the Father. Listen to Simeon. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This is the God you serve. He keeps lavish unimaginably great promises to normal people he wants you to be so certain of his reality that he put it in writing before he kept the greatest of all of his promises and then the final lesson taught to us by yet another person that's suddenly going to walk into the story is that our response to all of this and our response to Jesus himself reveals our heart toward God Keep reading with me. Verse 33. His father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Here's a dark note in a beautiful song. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day and coming up at that very hour she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is an amazing part of the story. Imagine Mary's state of mind when she, an ordinary Jewish girl who is expecting absolutely none of this, who has felt herself blessed and loved and grateful to marry a carpenter and a mason's son from Nazareth, suddenly is swept up in the drama of all that God has ever promised. She has given birth to an ordinary human being, to an ordinary boy born in all the usual ways, But she has done it in a way that no woman ever has before or since. Virgin born because this is the Son of God she's carrying. Mary and Joseph have now moved home. They've started their married life together. More than a month has passed since angels sang over Jesus and shepherds crowded in to see Him. And she thinks that now life is finally going to settle down and perhaps have some sense of normalcy. She's going to get back to observing the Jewish law. She is setting her course and her marriage along with her husband to attend the synagogue, to offer the prayers, to give the offerings, to do the things that God has commanded His people while they wait for the Savior. But something dramatic, life-changing, history-altering has changed. The Savior is now here. A man Mary has never met is holding him in his arms and praising and blessing God and singing and praising over him saying, When I see the face, Mary, of your son, I'm looking at the very fulfillment of all of God's promises. In the middle of all that, Joseph, uh, Simeon introduces perhaps the most chilling note in the whole song. He says to Mary, your boy is a sign from God, meaning the whole world is going to see him and react to him. He's going to be the focal point of people's attention his whole life. And though some people will know God by seeing him, many, many people will oppose him. And Mary, it's the cold note that runs through this beautiful warm song. A sword is going to run through your own soul. I can't imagine that she knew that day what Simeon meant. But some 33 years later, this young woman, now a grown woman, old for her culture, stands at the cross of her son and watches him die. And it must have felt like a sword was splitting her in two. That's going to happen because Jesus is going to have a divisive effect on this whole world. The sign that God has put in front of the whole world so that all the nations and all the tribes may be saved by him. Not everyone's going to react positively to Him. Many are going to oppose Him. It's actually the opposition is someday going to break Mary's heart as Jesus fulfills His final mission on His way to saving anyone who will trust Him anywhere in the world. Then Anna comes along, a woman who has lived with a broken heart, apparently married only seven years and living into 84 years of age who has used her widowhood by devoting herself to worship and fasting and prayer night and day in the temple. She comes up, I read in verse 38, in that same hour and begins to give thanks to God and to speak of God to all the people who were waiting to see what Simeon saw. In other words... These two ordinary people stepping into the story of Jesus tells you something that you need to account for for the rest of your discipleship to Jesus. Your response to the Lord Jesus shows the condition of your heart toward God Himself. So let me just ask you in closing, how's your heart toward Jesus? Are you getting a little weary of Him? many are. He's so often contradicted. He's so often minimized. He's so often pushed into the ordinary categories that we have for everybody else in the world. Can I ask you in the name of Jesus to talk to him and ask him to help you keep your heart tender toward the work of the Lord? The appearance of Jesus Christ on the earth is the most extraordinary thing in all of human history. It caused ordinary people to receive visions and prophecies. It was one of the many things that God did to fulfill, verify that he was working in human history as he had promised in writing for centuries to do. If the familiarity of this story robs you, of the absolute amazing fact that God is the kind of God who sheerly by His mercy, purely because of His love, makes sacrificial promises to normal people like us and then keeps them at His own expense. And that you have the privilege and grace, if you're a Christian, of loving and serving a Savior who will be controversial until He rules someday. This Christmas season, like every Christmas season, has been difficult for some families because some hearts have turned toward Him, other hearts have turned against Him. Simeon prophesied that from the very beginning. This woman we meet at the end of the story, she begins to bless God as well and to give witness to Him. Let's please be the kind of people who give witness to Jesus and keep a tender heart toward Him. Because, truly, our response to the Lord Jesus reveals the most important thing about us, our heart toward God Himself. Will you pray with me, please? It's Christmas Sunday morning, and we had three services just last night. It's very likely that the people who have chosen to come to church early on Christmas Day have a tender heart toward the Lord. But it can never be too tender. Maybe following Jesus has made you feel some of that opposition that Simeon promised. Maybe like Mary, following Jesus, trusting Jesus, caused some pain in your own soul. Brought division in your own family. Can I just invite you, Christian, to thank the Lord for being born among us? Just normal people. Ordinary, needy, limited, broken, sinful, selfish people. Just us. That's who He came for. Let's take time and thank Him. And if... some reason you find yourself in church on Christmas Sunday morning, but you're not entirely sure that you're actually a Christian. If this is just a religious habit for you, or a new religious beginning for you, but you haven't fully given your trust and love to Christ, you've never turned from your sin and asked Him to be your Savior, can I invite you to do that right now, please? Just say, Jesus, please save me. I need you. Please save me.